Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I hope you are as excited to listen to this episode as I was to meet the Dr. Jennifer Kruger. She is a senior research fellow at the Auckland Bioengineering Institute at the University of Auckland. She leads the Pelvic Floor Research Group, where the focus of the research is pelvic floor muscle function and dysfunction in women. She's experienced in coordinating diverse experts, maintaining focus and delivering technology founded on basic science through changing clinical practice. She has over 15 years of clinical practice in nursing and midwifery and brings both a clinical and bioinstrumentation <laughs> development understanding to the problem. Well, that was a mouthful. She is currently one of the principal investigators on an Endeavor program grant investigating smart sensors for the medical industry. She's published in a wide range of peer-reviewed journals, contributed to six book chapters, and presented at more than 36 conferences over the past five years. You might be familiar with her name because she has done some research in high-intensity athletes, um, and a lot of her research now is looking at intra-abdominal pressure. She has been an invited speaker at several international forums on pelvic floor health and is currently a member of the scientific committee of the International Continent Society. Presently, she is focused on developing instrumentation to measure the vaginal pressure profile and investigate how this information will help women manage their pelvic floor health. Now, it's a really fun conversation we had on how she's come to the development of the intravaginal pressure device that they are now um, playing around with and using. So the background information is great. And I do ask her um, close to the end what her opinion is on women and intra-abdominal pressure and exercise. So you'll have to listen to hear that. So I once again tried Zoom and it sort of failed me a little bit <laughs> again. Um, so I have tried to cut out as much of the portions that um, kind of were a little bit off from the Zoom recording. Um, but I hope it all is great and you guys enjoy the episode. Today I wanted to talk about intra-abdominal pressure in exercise and what you have been looking at and what you are finding and your views. So, <laughs> so I guess um, I might just wind the clock back a wee bit just to yes, give you a bit please. of how um, I kind of came to work in where I'm working now. So I started off, I started off as a clinician. So I, my background is actually nursing and midwifery, um, which is very odd. And yes. I then went and um, uh, probably about 15, yeah, more than 15 years ago, I really felt I wanted to go back to university because during my time as a midwife, I observed that a lot of, um, I have an interest in sports and exercise science and always have had. But I made an observation that a lot of women who were um, elite runners, and, and just because I have an interest in running, 
were having a particularly difficult time during labor, not so much um, beginning births, but the actual delivery. And I was curious as to why this might be, because for me, it didn't really make much sense. And to cut a long story short, I ended up going back to university. I did a PhD in sports and exercise science, and my PhD was in elite um, women athletes and childbirth. Yes. And I used a lot of um, just sort of quantitative measures to see what happened with the muscles of the pelvic floor and were they different to women who didn't exercise. So I wasn't making any predictions. I was just making investigations. Um, so I made, um, I used ultrasound, I used MRI and a Pacific instrument that was developed at the Auckland Bioengineering Institute where I work now to look at the actual um, some of the muscle properties, well, as much as we could, in women who had done a lot of high impact sport and women who hadn't. And, and, and were there any differences and could we perhaps attribute any of those changes to the phenomena that I as a clinician was observing in my practice? So that's kind of how I came into the area of exercise and the pelvic floor um, and childbirth, I suppose. I mean, my I always have a really soft spot for childbirth, obviously. So that led me to uh, apply for a fellowship, which I was lucky enough to get, and the Auckland Bioengineering Institute hosted my fellowship. So that meant that there was a slight shift in the way that my research was now being conducted in that it was very much a a different approach to investigating um, issues such as childbirth-related injury or development of instrumentation to measure physiological parameters. And um, so I've been extremely lucky that I've had these opportunities. And during the time of that first fellowship, I started um, a group within the Institute, which is called the Pelvic Floor Research Group. And it was initially focused around childbirth injury using something called computational modeling, which is a means that we can actually look at the muscle mechanics. So we can build up a realistic model of the pelvic floor. We can um, assign certain attributes to those models so that they do behave in a similar way to how normal muscles behave. And you can simulate childbirth so so this is not what I can do this is what my PhD students did with a lot of my input um, the engineers but that way we can yes so so that way you can get back um, some kind of quantitative information on the actual degree of muscle stretch or strain um, yeah and, and what happens during of that head through the pelvic floor yeah. Uh, and are there any um, changes such as hypertrophy or change in muscle stiffness that would influence that ability of the muscle to stretch or the head to get in the right position, you know, those kind of things. There's a lot of caveats with these models. We cannot implement all the variables yet. We're not quite sure of the actual uh, muscle properties of the pelvic floor muscles or the levator ani in particular. There are other constraints, sort of the boundary conditions. That means where these muscles are actually um, confined. So we, so you know, in anatomy we have origins, insertions, but in a computational model, 
you've got to have uh, areas within the model that are fixed so they don't move. And we know that that's probably not physiological because every bit moves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but we, can't, we can't build that into the model. We have to fix some bits. And where do you fix that? Do you fix it at the level of the... Um, you know, the iliac spines right at the top and right down to the femoral joint or where do you fix it so that yeah. that, that area stays stable? And we're not sure. So as I say, there's a lot of caveats, but nonetheless, it is um, a wonderful way to investigate physiology that is inaccessible. And it, pelvic floor muscles are pretty inaccessible. Yeah. Anyway, so that, that was kind of the first foray into working with uh, bioengineers. But along with that, um, building these models needs a lot of information. And the way we gather that information is by trying to develop instruments to measure stuff. So I mentioned we don't know um, the muscle properties of the muscles. So one of the first things we did was to try and build an instrument to give us an idea of what those properties would be like. And so that was the beginning of my actual relationship with Vivian Wong is that we looked at trying to decide whether or trying to investigate if there were differences in the pelvic floor muscles between um, Maori and Pacific Island women and uh, European women. Hmm. That difference, if we could measure a difference, whether that translated into different outcomes for um, birth. So did they suffer less pelvic floor muscle damage during delivery than European women? So you were measuring um, and, that and the, through transperineal ultrasound? So transperineal ultrasound, we were measuring the geometry of the muscle, yes. okay. but we were also using something that um, the bioengineers had developed called an elastometer. That oh, that's right, yes. So that gave us an indication of the elasticity of that muscle yeah. pre-pregnancy. And then we did it again post-delivery and looked to see, is this, you know, does this explain some of the outcome measures that we were getting? It was a really tricky study to do. It took three years and it was a difficult study in that the um, retention rate of our Maori and Pacific Island women was terrible. So yeah. we struggled to publish some of that work, but we have published some of it. Um, and it was mainly around the elasticity measurements of the muscles. So that was published about two years ago in one of the actor scan and advocate journals. But again, as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, to, to get a publication in 2006, it, honestly, our research started. <laughs> we just <laughs> left New Zealand, which was a long time ago. So... Yeah, it, it wasn't an easy study. But I think that kind of gave me um, a real good understanding of what it takes to develop an instrument to measure, you know, something as inaccessible as the pelvic floor. Yeah. And I guess um, along with all this, at the same time, this pelvic floor muscle research group that I was interacting and forming and getting people to join was um, comprised of urogynecologists a physiotherapist, engineers, me, and um, some nurses. But our urogynecologists were very interested in the uh, birth outcomes, but also in what was happening after birth. So 
with the development of incontinence and prolapse. Hmm. And I guess one of the um, burning questions for them was uh, we give advice or they give advice to patients after surgery. And um, there was very little evidence behind this advice that was being given, such as yes. don't lift anything heavier than a kettle, don't do whatever it is. So, um, yeah, so, so that sort of piqued my interest again because this is really going back to sort of sports and exercise and daily activities and what can you do and what can't you do. And I guess that then led to the development of the second instrument within the Institute, and that was the first um, pressure sensor for measuring abdominal pressure. So that was a very long story to get to. No, but I love hearing the background. So that's how, so this is the first pressure sensor that you're talking about now. Was that the one that had wires and that was intravaginal? So that is the one. um, It was a small little uh, fluid-filled balloon with a sensor catheter in it and um, it was modeled on the shape of the vagina so it sat right at the very top of the vagina in the posterior cortex and it was connected to a little battery telemeter but you could walk around with it it wasn't um, you weren't tethered to a machine and the uh, little telemeter would transmit the data to a laptop computer Okay. So we had a very smart engineer who would look, um, it was a program called Power Labs, you connect to Power Lab, you connect to the uh, uh, laptop and you could see what was happening to the abdominal pressure in real time, which was being measured by this little catheter. So we got the ladies to do all the um, activities that were generally recommended not to do post-surgery. So we looked at what happened when you vacuumed, for instance. We looked at what happened when you picked up a a five kilo weight, when you bent down to mimic sort of pegging out your washing or lifting your baby or I can't remember the other things we did. Um, So not necessarily sports or exercise, (laughs) just stuff that you generally do around your house. Yes. So this was very much based on the guidelines that were, um, and probably still are, although I think they've been modified, Hmm. that have been released by Ayuga and the Royal College. Yeah. So there's a set of guidelines there that are quite restrictive. And I know that both um, Lindsay and Jackie, who are our Eurogyne elaborators, were um, reluctant in some cases to give that advice as a blanket advice because many women needed to go back to work or they were looking after young children or they were, um, you know, in a, in a job that required them to do some form of lifting, even if it wasn't heavy lifting, but just minimal lifting. And to be told you can't do that for six weeks is, is quite limiting. Yeah. So that was the impetus for that study. And in the end we made a video um, where we actually did the activities and wearing the device and then um, you could see the traces in real time as we were doing these activities and we videoed it. And it was pretty sure I've seen that video. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we got quite, we got a lot of feedback from that video. Um, And I think the bottom line was that 
things like getting up and down out of a chair is the yeah. same as if you vacuum. So yeah. the most provocative um, rises in intra-abdominal pressure was if you were straining or if, if you were coughing. Hmm. So the best advice is probably not to be constipated or, or avoid getting sick yes. <laughs> rather than d- stop doing all these other activities um, for that degree, that length of time. Yeah, which seemed to be the advice in our physiotherapy clinical world over the last few years. But instead of saying um, this activity is similar to this activity, it was just kind of added on top saying you still shouldn't do this stuff, uh, but you should also make sure that you aren't getting sick and constipated. So now it's everything. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So anyway, so that's kind of the first study. But I think what um, we learned from that study was it's all very well to measure abdominal pressure but you would know as a physiotherapist what we really want to know is what's happening at the level of the pelvic floor as well yes we want to know that relationship between pelvic floor muscle pressure and abdominal pressure so um because that would give you much more information than just one pressure measurement well exactly and uh, especially because so, you found in that earlier studies or did you find in that earlier time that intra-abdominal pressure was highly variable between individuals? Oh, very variable. We need to know those relationships between abdominal pressure and pelvic floor muscle pressure. Mm, yes. The next um, instrument that we developed was this pressure sensor array. And so it's, it was originally a master's project and um, the student looked at creating an array of pressure sensors along the length of the vagina because we weren't exactly sure whether we needed to have one sensor or three sensors or four sensors. So the decision in the end was, well, let's have as many as we can fit in. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's what we did. So is and this the, is the, so are, is this the FemFit that you were talking about now? No, no, this is the first prototype of the okay. FemFit. Oh, nice. Yeah, pressure sensor array. And it was, as I say, a master's project in the beginning. And um, we had a lovely student who worked on it. And she had all kinds of ideas, which some were good and some were not so good. But in the end, we settled on a shape, which would... So so the rationale behind the FemFit, um, which wasn't called the FemFit at that point, it was just a pressure sensor array, was that it really needed to be non-space occupying as much as possible. In other words, we didn't want to develop an instrument that would create a pressure. So we didn't want to develop a probe that once you put in, no matter what the pressure that was already there, the probe itself would create a pressure and you would be measuring almost an artificial pressure. Yeah. So we wanted something that would be soft and flexible, have the ability to move with the vagina when it moved, and also to be able to stay in place when you were doing these exercises. And that's quite a tall order because... You say you're not asking you know, for much. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so there were a lot of... Uh, there were a lot of things we wanted this instrument to do. We also needed it to um, be wireless and to communicate via Bluetooth because you can't walk around tethered to the computer. 
So um, all of that was not achieved during her master's project, but she definitely got the, the prototype going and she managed to create a device which indeed was able to be small enough, flexible enough, and could transmit data um, from, I think she had in the end four of us or maybe five of us that tried it. And it seemed to be, you know, it could measure, it could discriminate between abdominal pressure and pelvic floor muscle pressure. And this was the first time we'd ever seen an instrument that could do that uh, simultaneously. So we could look at what was happening at the level of the pelvic floor when you did a cough and see how those pelvic floor muscles activated in relationship to a rise in IAP. Does it distinguish between, because you said you've got a whole bunch of sensors, so does it distinguish between kind of deep and superficial pelvic floor? Um, so you will see an activation around sensors. If you imagine the sensors uh, one to eight, with one being closer to the introital area okay. and eight abdominal pressure, yeah. usually seven and eight are quite... Um, close to the posterior fornix, and that's yes. where we would traditionally measure IAP or abdominal yep. pressure. Anything below that um, will pick up activation of the muscles around that vicinity of the vagina. Okay. And then the more superficial pressure sensors, one and two, would sometimes pick up atmospheric pressure or mm. they would pick up any perineal activity okay. sometimes. Neat. So, so what in effect you're getting is you're getting a vaginal pressure profile. So at any one point, you will see that there is a, a graph that has a shape. So if it's a cough, you'll see that the uppermost sensors are high. Um, you get a little bit of activation around your pelvic floor. Uh, but if it's atmospheric pressure, then you'll get quite a, a differential between your abdominal pressure and your um, atmospheric pressure. So you'll yeah. get that. Of the, of the curve and, and so for us that as and the engineers were particularly excited about this um, and I was excited about this because I thought this would really give us more a richer data set and information about what was happening when people were exercising and could it then be that for some women it's fine to do heavy lifting for some women maybe it's not so I, is there a possibility that this, you know, may be used in the future as like an assessment or clinical tool? Yes. I mean, that is one of the goals. So I think there's a number of um, outcomes we're hoping for this device. So yeah. since that uh, student's master's, we've come quite a long way with the um, development of the FemFit. So the actual shape of it has changed a wee bit. Certainly the uh, technical details have changed and the electronics have changed so that we've got a much more stable connection now with the Bluetooth yeah. connecting to an app on your phone. Um, it's still very much under the research umbrella. So yeah. it's still a bit, a bit new. Uh, but even as a pelvic floor muscle trainer for women, we feel that this will give them a lot more information than just your standard... Eastems or your uh, LVs or whatever they uh, yeah. carry coach or any of those because it gives you much more uh, confidence that actually you're increasing your pressure because you're contracting your muscles. You're not increasing your pressure because you're increasing your abdominal pressure. Yeah. And, and if, 
sorry, if you are measuring intra-abdominal pressure with this device, um, and the devices in the past were also measuring intra-abdominal pressure, and you have done a variety of exercises with both devices, as devices change, can you still um, compare those same exercises when you've used different devices? Yes, because essentially you're using okay. the same idea of having a pressure yeah. sensor array. Okay. So you'll always get that discrimination between your abdominal pressure and your pelvic floor muscle pressure. Yeah. So the, um, the concept hasn't really changed. The, the design perhaps has changed in that it is the retention is slightly better now okay. uh, during impact. So before when you were running on a treadmill, you know, sometimes it slipped. It, it's, it's a wee bit better now, but it, there's still a little bit of work to do there. The pressure sensors themselves are smaller, so it means that we can make the devices more easily. Yeah. Um, and the telemeter is slightly different as well. And it actually looks a bit better than it used to. Oh. <laughs> so, we're getting there. <laughs> so what, yeah. what have you so, found so guess, with regards to um, specific exercises? and Because you've now been able to do more than activities of daily living. You've been looking at more strenuous exercise and using um, this um, vaginal pressure sensor. So have you found any difference within activities? That's kind of the big question we always get from physiotherapists and patients. And like we said, it's always individual, but people are like, yeah, but which exercises are increasing the pressure most? Yeah, no, it is an age old question. So. Yes. So um, you're right. We have been using the FemFit and that's been a, um, a really rewarding study with Mark Sherburn from uh, Melbourne. Yes. So Marg and I have nearly finished with the study and we've published some preliminary results and we have found that, uh, so what this study was really doing was looking at the information on the Pelvic Floor First website, which has recommended certain types of exercises as pelvic floor safe Yes. Um, in preference to doing the same exercise in a more conventional manner. So um, if I can think of one example, it, you, it's um, safer in inverted commas for your pelvic floor if you walk, then rather run on a treadmill, yeah. for instance, or if you step up onto a lower box, then a higher box. So we took, I think, eight to 10 pairs of these exercises and um, we've done a preliminary analysis on half of our participants we nearly finished collecting data so hopefully the final results will be out soon and we found that for all the parameters that we've measured so for each sensor the um, pressures were much higher in most of the conventional exercises compared to the pelvic floor safe exercises for the ones we've measured um, interestingly though some of them are surprising in that there doesn't seem to be a difference. So, yeah. for instance, for um, lunging, there doesn't seem to be a difference whether you lunge with weights or without weights. Yeah. Uh, and then there was another one um, for uh, planks, whether you do a full plank or a modified plank. Statistically, there doesn't seem to be too much of a difference. Although, um, if you're looking at the numbers in the full plank, the numbers for abdominal pressure are higher than if you do a modified plank but again 
there isn't a statistical difference. Yeah. But I am just going to say at this point that um, there are lots of ways to analyze the pressure traces. Yes. <laughs> and this is something we're learning about. So when you um, are recording pressure from a pressure sensor, it comes out as a trace with a frequency and um, uh, how much it changes over time, as well as an actual change in absolute pressure and then just the change from zero. Now we've got eight sensors and each one of these sensors is picking up at a frequency of 100 hertz. So that's 100 data points per second for um, however long it takes you to do that exercise. So there's an awful lot of data and we have done a lot of analysis on looking at the best measures which would reflect what is really going on. So it's quite easy for abdominal pressure. You just look at the peak pressures. But what about over time? But what about over time? Exactly. What about over time? What happens when you run on the treadmill for half an hour or whether you run a marathon? Um, You know, so this is, this is just a snapshot of what we can do with the FemFit and we're working on um, a lot of uh, maths behind getting algorithms to automatically interpret these pressure traces and pulling out the the bits that are really of clinical interest or um, physiological interest and will be pertinent to you as a clinician and also a woman who wants to go back to running after having a baby and who's leaking a little bit. So what is it? What are the the numbers, I guess, that are important? And that's still something we're working on. So although we presented some of our our work already, we've presented the numbers from each of the sensors. And maybe it's not all the sensors that we need to take into account. Maybe it's just, um, and maybe it's not the peaks. Maybe it's, um, area under the curve I don't know you know there are other issues that's it how do you decide which which one is important and which one to look at and which one to so at the moment we're looking at all (laughs) so we haven't limited ourselves yet we are looking at all of them and we're spending a lot of time looking at pressure traces and looking at we can um section them out and we can look at each trace for each pressure sensor for each exercise for each participant and that takes a lot of time and between Marg and myself and the engineers here we are really doing a lot of programming of software to automate the process but before that happens we've got to be sure that what we're implementing first of all makes sense and secondly is valid so there's a wee bit of water to go under the bridge. But um, I think for me, what is exciting is that for most women, they could do the exercises with the FemFit. They could certainly, um, we didn't, we'd asked a lot of questions about comfort and, you know, mm. and stuff. Um, and that has led to the various iterations of the device. And we're getting to a point now, I think, where we're almost ready to produce many more of these devices so that we can do the more research like your research or um, or to help with your research to do the measurement. 
with. Yeah. And to see how um, valuable that information is. And then also to get a bit of more feedback on how women, you know, feel about using a device such as this. Have you done any work with regards to using the pressure device to detect changes in intra-abdominal pressure when someone does a certain exercise but modify the way that they're breathing? Because I know that's something that people talk about a lot is if you want to decrease pressure, don't hold your breath, you know, you should be breathing mm-hmm. out. Have you looked at that at all? Yeah. <clears throat> no, no. And that's certainly not something yet. we <laughs> Um, so, so what's happening at the moment is that the sensors are in clinical studies in Canada with Chantal Dumoulin. Yeah. So you probably know her as a physio, and um, she's looking at the reliability of the device, and they've just finished that study, and that should come out pretty soon. That's just being written up at the moment. Yeah. And that's looking at a test-retest reliability. She's now using the device in a, um, to look to see if there's a change in women who have come to her lab for treatment for incontinence. Yep. So does the pressure profile change pre and post physiotherapy treatment for women with incontinence? And that's really important. We really want to know that. That's a, a fundamental use for, for us, would be a fundamental use of the FEMFIT, is if this is a useful tool both for the woman and for the clinician. And then we've got another study, which we have been doing a pilot here in Auckland, and now it's been rolled out in the UK, where they're looking at, is there a difference in the vaginal pressure profile pre and post prolapse surgery? Oh, so, I was just going to ask um, you that. Is the, how, yeah. Can you use it in women who have vaginal laxity yeah. or organ descent? Absolutely. So, <clears throat> you know, we're looking at that profile before the surgery, and we're looking yes. at it when the women are lying, we're looking at when the women are standing and then we're getting them when they come back for their six week check, we're doing exactly the same thing. And Does it impede really, on organ descent? Like yes. that was a reason why we didn't look at, we may use intra-abdominal pressure rectally because we don't want to be, you know, putting the <clears throat> something inside that stops the organs from descending. Cause that's what we're looking at. So yeah. How did, does that kind of get in the way? No, because of the size of it. You see, it's very flexible. It's very thin. It's only 0.4 millimeters or four millimeters thick. Really? So it's very thin, yeah. Okay. So what you do is you just put in a sim speculum or something and then you yeah. put, slip it in. And um, but, but because there is descent, yes. you will get activation. So you're going to be measuring at that point probably a contact pressure of if there's certainly if there's a central compartment prolapse or even if there's an anterior wall. Yeah. You will measure pressure. So what we're seeing is that our pressure profile is completely skewed pre-surgery. But interestingly, post-surgery, it is almost what we're expecting. And I guess you may know this, but for us, it was amazing how the women who had not really had much pelvic floor muscle training after surgery could now contract their muscles. Hmm. even if it was minimal they could do a contraction and you could see that and you can see that on the traces post-surgery whereas it wasn't very obvious that this was happening pre-surgery so um the pilot work here was to test um whether this was feasible it was a more a feasibility study than a pilot study and now the study that's going to take place in the UK will be a much bigger study with 
at least 60 women, so there'll be 30 in each arm, and they'll look at the effect of different kinds of surgery and whether the profile is a useful metric for the um, clinician, whether it helps them with the kinds of decisions that they're making about the types of surgery they're doing, but also whether it helps the women to maintain that profile post-surgery in the hopes that you're not going to get recurrence because I guess you know that's a big problem. Yeah, oh, that is so interesting. So what, if we were to be able to use this in kind of the clinical world, are we thinking five years down the track or 10 years? <laughs> How far away? Um, no, we're hoping um, it'll be a little quicker than that. So okay. once you're on the road to sort of looking at um, these kind of things from manufacture, you then shift gears enormously and you become much, you have to then follow sort of regulatory standards yeah. and you have to be compliant with all kinds of, um, you know, uh, standards in terms of the FDA approval or uh, CE marking or anything like that. And we have shifted gears slightly. So we are now working under these quality management systems. Hmm. We're not in any production mode yet. We're still yep. as a, under the research umbrella. But um, we are under that umbrella with a view to getting this to a point where we can confidently distribute it to yeah. larger groups internationally so that, and that we'll be able to support them because not only is it the device itself that we are um, looking for verification of, the device interacts with an app. Yes. And that app is how you collect your data. And that data gets saved to a web portal and then you, you, perhaps as a clinician, would go to the web portal and download your information, but then you need to be able to interpret it. Hmm. And as I say, it's not always such a simple process. It's not like saying, oh, well, look, here, there's a peak pressure. <laughs> Let's take that one. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a whole uh, back-end stuff that we need to be in a position to support. So, so it's a lot of work around um, the development of any device. It's not just the hardware, it's all the software and the people that go with it. So it's about growing my group so that we are in a position to be able to support those research groups as well as work under these quality management systems so that when the device is available for distribution, we're confident that we meet all the standards and it's going to be you know, up to FDA standard because we will file for FDA hopefully by the end of next year. So once we get that in place, then it's probably about another year or two years after that once all the trial results are in, I guess. Maybe if I'm still alive at that. Oh, <laughs> oh that just... It's exciting. Um, you it's know, I, I love exciting. the idea of being able to to help and, and I guess too for for me and and probably for you it's really about individualizing treatments yeah. for specific women. So it I think um you can provide some advice in a in a generalized sense, but really it's about the individual. It's about personalizing her own risk of high impact sport. Or she wants to go and do CrossFit or double unders or lift high weights you know heavy weights then if that relationship between IAP and pelvic floor support is okay there's no 
reason why you shouldn't be able to. Yeah, that's that's so exciting. And then when I hear things like this and I read your research and then you just kind of go, okay, hurry up. <laughs> I want it now. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> well, watch the space because it isn't too far away. Um, yeah. But hopefully I've managed to convey that there is you know, we really want to be in, in a position that when we do release stuff, we are confident that it is compliant with all the regulatory requirements and also that it works. Yeah. Um, as, that it works <laughs> and gives you the information you want and you're able to interpret it. So with everything so, that you um, have looked at, do you feel kind of as um, a researcher, as a clinician, everything that you kind of have done over the last few years, do you feel that there is a specific type of exercise that um, people should be careful with or do you still feel that it's very individual? Um, I think it's very individual. I think it's, um, it really depends on how well those pelvic organs are supported and mm. it depends on the generation of abdominal pressure and how that pressure is distributed and how, um, and I guess too, I'm not a physiotherapist, but I should imagine that you can affect that by certain ways you do the exercise. But having said that, being a runner my whole life, I also understand and fully advocate women being as active mm. as they want to be, yeah. within reason. Um, I know that a lot of clinicians will put a blanket ban on things like CrossFit and say it's really and, and running. It used to be running, and now it's CrossFit. Yeah, now it's CrossFit, and um, lifting heavy weights is is something that many people frown upon. Uh, but again, I think those kind of exercises are, should be individual, individually assessed. But I also think you need a certain amount of common sense. If you've yeah. just had a huge big baby, um, you know, uh, you're not going to go and lift 120 kilos. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is silly. <laughs> But I think people too realizing, which I mean, we get out of your research as well with the individual variation is that there's also an individual threshold that people have at various points in their life. And that, you know, trying to get people to be aware of that, but also listen to that because <laughs> sometimes people don't want to. So, so there is that. And I think that that threshold is something we don't know. We don't no. know what the threshold is. And I do think it is individual. Yeah. I think, you know, my threshold will be different to others. And um, that depends on a lot of things. You know, it depends on BMI, it depends on age, it depends on parity, it depends on uh, what the status is of your pelvic floor muscles. It depends on an awful lot of things. Yeah. So, so the, and this, this clinical, well, this tool one day when it becomes clinical will help us um, kind of create more individual guidance. So I'm very excited for it. Oh, good. Yes. Well, yes. that's what we're hoping. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you it's so much. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you again to everyone who has sponsored the podcast through Podbean. Um, if you download the Podbean app, you can click a button that means you become a patron and you can donate 
um, monthly. You can do a one-off donation. And those who do donate, I have been trying to keep up to date with putting out some little mini episodes that are for patron patrons only. Um, I've missed November, but that will be coming soon. And if you are enjoying the episodes and if you don't want to donate, that's completely fine. But I would love if you could go onto Apple iTunes and give a rating for the podcast so that other people can find it. Thank you. Have a good day.